90s footy fans, welcome to another edition of the 90s Club Footy Podcast. This week we are chatting with Sydney Swan fan favourite, Troy Luff. Troy, a product of Nelson Bay, made his debut with the Swans in 1990. He played a total of 155 games over his 12-year career in the red and white, including the 1996 AFL Grand Final against North Melbourne. In this episode, Troy talks about the challenges he faced trying to gain a regular spot in the Swans team in the early days, the 1994 season where he was delisted and redrafted, Rodney Eade's positive influence on his career, the 1996 Grand Final, and his mental health battles in his latter years. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Troy Luff. Troy Luff, thank you for joining on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. Great to catch up with you, mate. Uh, My pleasure, Trent. It's always good talking about footy when it was probably a little bit more fun than what it is nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, mate, uh, I, I had a friend, I must admit, I had a friend uh, who's a mad Sydney Swan supporter, and I said to him, which Sydney Swan uh, player would you love me to track down and try and catch up with? He goes, oh, the number 34, Troy Luff. So he's going to be absolutely <laughs> wrapped when uh, he hears that I've got this uh, podcast with you. So he's going to be very, very happy. No, no worries. Like I said, I enjoy talking about the old time footy. It's, uh, it's a lot different to what today's footy is. Hey, Troy, before we sort of get into the footy talk, what are you doing with yourself? These days, I guess, post-footy. Uh, look, I'm, I was actually one of the few people that worked during my playing days. I started uh, my own landscape gardening business as well as car detailing business, and I've just maintained that uh, since I retired. So it's been, what's that, 20-odd years ago. Um, and I sort of I built up a pretty good client base, but I've, I've got to a point now where I've actually got someone to help me because... The, the physical labour work just gets to me, especially in summer when it's hot, 30-odd degrees every day, lifting, carrying, uh, mowing lawns, all that sort of stuff. So I've actually got someone starting next week and to take over a few of my jobs and I can sit back a little bit more and just let him do all the work. Ah, oh, terrific, mate. That's awesome. Hey, I'm really interested. I knew you grew. I knew you uh, your early life. You grew up in Victoria around the uh, the Gippsland area. Then you went to uh, to New South Wales as you got a little bit older. Um, how did you make your way to the Sydney Swans? Was it via the draft back in the uh, the late 80s or were you picked up as a, I guess, because you're a New South Wales-based player, do they have first dibs on you? What was sort of the, the way that the Swans picked you up? Yeah, I was born and bred in Terrelgan and I still have many, many friends there and I go there quite often. I was only there earlier this year or late last year. Um, always good to catch up with the mates. I moved to Nelson Bay just up past Newcastle with the family in 87. Uh, and the Swans actually had me down for training a couple of times. I went down to Sydney from Nelson Bay, trained with them a few times. They sort of had me on the radar, and then in 1990, uh, as you said, after three years of living in New South Wales, I became a New South Welshman going by their rules, and (laughs) which meant that back then the Swans had priority pick over New South Welsh uh, Wales players, and so there was no draft. I was just just put on the list uh, in June, so they had to take someone off the list they had the mid-season draft and just put a New South Welshman on the list, and uh, that was June 1990. Was there any murmurs or anything from any Victorian clubs to, to try and get you back to Victoria at all, sort of knowing the footy you are playing up at Nelson Bay? Not back then, no. It was probably a little bit different. There, there wasn't as much uh, technology as far as who's playing well. It was all about someone having to go and watch you and then make a phone call. And, and at the time, which is what I found out later on, recruitment, 
offices didn't travel much north of Sydney because they didn't believe there was anything worthwhile up there. And if you, you look at the amount of players that have actually come from the Newcastle area, I think there's about six in all of the AFL. Um, at the time that I went there, there was only myself, Terry Thripp, and one other guy. Uh, and since then, Isaac Heaney, obviously, from Cardiff. Craig Bird, he was from Nelson Bay. Um, the McVeighs, they were from the Central Coast. So, And it, there's actually quite a few Central Coast players that have since played AFL. Um, but back in the early 90s, no one ever went, no one ever looked up there. <laughs> very, very lucky then. Hey, mate, what was the environment like at Sydney when you were when you first arrived, I guess, on and off the field? I reckon maybe Cole Kinnear might have been the, the senior coach at that stage, but I guess Sydney probably weren't successful win-loss-wise when you first got there. What was the environment like on and off? And I guess, too, being a non-Victorian side. Well, I joined when... The players that were there in the mid-80s, late-80s, when they were making finals and uh, they were one of the top sides, you know, when Warwick Capper kicked 100 goals, you had Jared Healy winning Brownlows, Greg Williams, Bernard Tui, David Bolton, David Murphy, all these great players. Uh, and I sort of came when they were getting towards the end of their career. So Dennis Carroll was the captain and the, at the time, the team wasn't going very well. I think we won three games or something during that year and even – the second last game of that season, we played Brisbane Bears at the SCG in front of about 4,500 people, and the loser was actually going to be the bottom of the ladder, and that's how bad Swans were going at the time. Um, off the field, though, that was a different story. We were probably top of the ladder when it came to off the field. Uh, you know, I, I'm this young kid from Nelson Bay and living in a, a very small town. I had no idea what the big smoke was like. I'd only been to Sydney once, I think, in my life, and after every game, there was something on. We were going to the pub, we were going to bars, we had functions on, went to the coach's house for barbecues. Like, it was just, wow, this is great. So we weren't very good on the field, but geez, we had a great social life. <laughs> Who was leading the way with uh, the social side of things back then? Well, there was like two different groups. There was a group that lived in the Southern Shire. So you had the guys like Bernard Tui, Greg Williams, uh, Michael Kennedy, uh, David Bolton, and... Uh, James West, they all lived in the Southern Shire. Then you had the Eastern Suburbs, and they were players like Leon Higgins. Um, probably, it's funny, all the good players, all the top-notch players were living down south, whereas all the ones that lived in the Eastern Suburbs were the reserve-grade players or a few of the senior players. So I sort of joined with both of them. So I'd have one weekend <laughs> down the Shire. The next weekend, I'd be going to Archie in Bondi Junction, um, you know, or the Cock and Bull in Bondi Junction with the Eastern Suburbs guys, and a lot of the young guys in the Eastern Suburbs as well. So there sort of wasn't really a leader of each group. It was just they were the old senior blokes down there, and the young blokes were in the Eastern Suburbs. <laughs> hey, your first season at the club, Luffy, you made your debut against Fitzroy. Uh, what do you recall of that game and that day? And did you feel in yourself you were ready to step up and play AFL footy? I don't think I was ready. Um, like literally two weeks earlier, I was playing for Nelson Bay so, and, and had no idea what was going to happen. And um, my dad, who was fantastic, he'd drive all the way to Sydney to train once a week and then on the weekend, mum and dad would both come down and watch me play. I had two games in the reserves and I was at training in Nelson Bay on a Thursday night doing our usual Thursday night after training cards, having a few beers, a few few cigarettes, you know, and then – all of a sudden, Dad comes to training and goes, Troy, you've got to get home now. You're playing footy. Seniors on the weekend. I'm like, what? Like, I, I, I was totally shocked. Um, so went home, 
went down to Sydney on the Sunday to play and I just, I was way out of my league, way out of my league. And it, I think I might have had one or two games the seniors back to the reserves. And then I, then I sort of, I realised where I was and realised that I had to step up a little bit, not, not skill-wise, but just mentally-wise. You know, this is professional football. And so I had a couple of really good games towards the end of the year, kicked a few goals. We won a couple of games. Um, and it probably, realistically, it probably wasn't a couple of years before I actually really knuckled down and went, you know what, this, it's not easy. This is hard. And sort of really took on the role of a you know, professional AFL player. Um, before that, it just seemed like a bit of a, a bit of a ride, you know, a bit of a roller coaster. Get on there, and have some fun, and then you lose a game, win a game, and yeah, it wasn't for a couple of years before I really started playing, you know, some some pretty good football and realised that this is where I'm at. This is where I'm going to try and be for a, a long time. I was just going to say, my next question was, you know, your early days, your first few seasons, you know, you played games every year, but you weren't a consistent um, member of the team. And I was going to ask, was that due to you know any injuries or? Um, you know, trying to find a spot in the team for team balance, or was it just a cup, or a little bit of immaturity? I guess you know, just not realizing that uh, you know what it takes to to play at that level consistently and and each week well. It was the coach. That is the absolute what it was. Um, I don't know why, but uh, Ron Barassi didn't rate me as a player, and uh, like I was playing really well in the reserves. And then I'd get a game in the seniors. I'd start on the bench. I'd play 20 or 30 minutes. Next week, the same. I'm back in the reserves. I'm like, I don't understand what I'm doing. Um, I think it was 1994 or 95. I come runners up in the Gardner Medal, which is the old reserve grade Brownlow. Um, I was playing predominantly in the back line. And I'd be getting 25, 30 touches a game. I'd take 10 marks. I'd kick a goal. And Brass would just come up and say, oh, you know, good game. Just keep going, you, you know, you'll get in soon and just just didn't happen. And I, I couldn't get in, like, no matter what I did, I couldn't get in the side. And then it wasn't until Rodney Eade came and, and thankfully for me that in 1995 I played some really good games uh, in against North Melbourne and the Brisbane Bears when he was up there as well and he could see there was maybe some potential. And so at the end of 95, after five and a half seasons, I played 45 games and then once Rodney Eden comes, like 50th game in 96, 100th game in 98, 150th game in 2001. So it really, it, it, it came down to the coach. I, you know, I got to a point where I believed in my own ability, but just couldn't get a game. And I'd watch other players get games that it was just like, how is that bloke getting a game? Or why is that bloke getting a game? We had players back then that didn't even live in Sydney that were playing football. You know, yeah. I mean, Simon Connell didn't even live in Sydney. You know, I mean, he's a senior player, but then we had other guys that, that for some reason they just thought they should play them, yet they didn't train with us. We never saw them. Yeah, that's hard. And I guess too, like looking at that now, like were you, did you ever seek opportunities elsewhere just because a bit of frustration knowing that your footy, you're good enough, your footy's good enough to be playing senior footy, but you weren't getting there? Well, at the end of 95, um, I actually got delisted and I'd spoken with Essendon and they were pretty keen. And they said, look, if you're still there at the end of the draft, we'll draft you. Um, then the Swans put me back on the list before the draft. Then they took me off the list again because they said they had too many draft picks. So I actually got delisted twice in the one year, and the Swans redrafted me at like number 72. Um, actually, that was the end of, sorry, that was the end of 94, not 95, the end of 94. Um, 
and they redrafted me. And yet another year in 95 was the same, in and out. I'd, I'd play in the seniors, have a really good game, kick some goals, kick 6-1 get one day. I'd play on John Longmire at full back. And then it was always two weeks after, that was it, you're back out again. So, you know, and that was at the end of 95 that actually Essendon were um, also keen as well. How did you feel when the Swans redrafted you, thinking, well, you know, maybe a, a new change could be great, obviously, and maybe a bit more of opportunity playing at Essendon, but the Swans got you again. How did you feel when they redrafted you? Uh, I mean, look, I went through a few different phases where I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And just started focusing more on work. Um, and then it was like, you know what, I can play this game. Like, I, I can get in there. And I, I was just annoyed and I was frustrated and I was angry that that I had to keep doing this the way it was, you know, in and out, in and out. So I had nearly six years of frustrating football, not, not getting in the side. Or, or staying in the side. Um, so I was just annoyed. When they did redraft me, they, as they said they were going to, I was like, right, you know, I'll have one more crack at this. I've got to get there. But, of course, Barassi was still there that year. It wasn't until the end of the year that I was actually nearly on top of the list to get to list again at the end of 95. Um, but when Rodney, he, he came up and he saw the list and he went, no, 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 I want to keep this guy. And, and after two games in the reserves in 96, I was in the seniors and, and stayed there mostly for the next six years. Kicks it across to the wing and a mark taken by Kapler. He looks to play on and he can do so now with that left foot. This is a beautifully weighted kick. And Bruce, you may get your wish. Lapu's kicked five. This is the similar distance, but just on the other side of centre-half forward from his previous shot at goal. Ruse preparing to come back. Luff, we see, take a diving chest mark. Well, you'd have to say he's a chance from here if he kicked the last one. Big chance. For certainty, Robbo. Just changing my votes here. Five goals out of nine. It could be six out of ten. A match-winning performance by the last-minute replacement for Tony Lockett. He goes for goal. <laughs> And I guess that leads to my next question. It's fair to say that your football really took a positive turn under Rocket Aid. I think, as you said, you missed the first two games, then played 23 games after that. That included a grand final. What was it about Rocket that just gave you self-belief, um, an opportunity? What was it that he that you felt that he sort of saw in you? Oh, it was probably what he saw in the team. And he gave the team the opportunity to go out and play and enjoy their football without worrying about what the result might be. And so players were filled with confidence. Like he gave me a lot of confidence. He, you know, before a game or that week before a game, he'd say, right, you know, this week you're playing centre-half back or this week you're playing centre-half forward and just go out and enjoy it. Take some, you know, take some grabs. Kick a couple of goals. Like he, he didn't put pressure. There was no pressure. And so players just sort of that, you know, we went from 95 to I think we won six games, seven games, something like that, to all of a sudden 96 were in a grand final. And that's because the whole team adopted what, he instilled in everyone was just the confidence to go out and enjoy your football like you're out there running around with mates. Um, enjoy the win. We had we still had a pretty good social life as well after games and things like that. And so it wasn't just me personally. It was the whole team. And we really enjoyed it. But then he changed a little bit at the end of 96. And I think because he felt a bit more pressure on him, 
that he got a little bit more angrier, a lot shorter. Um, he, he didn't. He, he wasn't as much fun, I guess you'd say, in '97 as what he was in '96. Um, and then it just—it was like the slow decline from there until obviously Ruzi came along. Um, I want to ask you about '96. Uh, obviously, that's it started. We'll look at the prelim first, and then we'll look at the grand final. But that prelim final, wow! What a what a uh, an exciting game came down to the wire against Essendon. Plug a lock. It had that shot of goal after the siren. Had to kick a point just to to get the win or goal or a point. Didn't really really matter. Uh, what were you? Where were you on the ground um, when the when Plugger was having a kick? And I guess what were your thoughts with uh, what was going to unfold? What were you thinking? Uh, if you look at the video of Plugger having a shot for goal, you'll see me walk past him and say a few words. I basically just said, "Plugger, just get it over the line. That's all you've got to do. Get it over the line." And Back then, the 50 wasn't quite a 50 at the SCG. They have actually extended a little bit. So it was probably about 47 and a half. So where he kicked it from was probably about 50 once you sort of add a couple of metres on. Um, and then we just saw the ball sailing in the direction we, and we just knew. And players came from everywhere and jumped on top of him. And I was one who jumped on him first. And <laughs> after about five or six jumps, all you can hear is plug on the bottom going, get off me, get off me. He had a groin injury at the time. And so everyone's just piled up on top of him. Um, and it, just, it was just unbelievable to know that we're in a grand final, that a year earlier we would have had Mad Monday a month earlier, you know, yeah. at the end of 95. Yeah, um, it was an amazing game, and I, I I just remember the crowd like it was just pandemonium at the SCG, and probably a crowd that you you wouldn't have seen in your time at the SCG so loud and vibrant and up and about. No, well that year, I mean, we broke records. We had forty four thousand against Geelong one game, and they had to actually put people next door in the football stadium and watch it on the big screen. <laughs> we had packed houses. Often, you know, we had plugger kicking a hundred players, um, people running on the ground. We beat West Coast to finish on top of the ladder. We had supporters running on the ground. Made the grand final, supporters running on the ground. It was like three times in a year, you know. We just saw Buddy do it a couple of months ago with, with you know, 10,000 people on the ground. We had that three times in one year. It was, it was amazing. And just the euphoria, it was just running into the, the change rooms after the game. Just to, you know, people are just, we're shocked. We're like, we're in a grand final. And we knew we were coming up against a side that we beat quite easily earlier in the year. And we're like, we could win this. It was, it was just great. It was, it was amazing. It was, you know, the, it was always the best football period of my, my life. It was fantastic. Speaking about Buddy Franklin kicking that thousand goal at the SCG, I know you do some boundary riding for Triple M. Did you run on the field uh, that night when, uh, when he yes. kicked the thousandth or did you stay there. in the grandstands? No, I was there. I, I was sitting about five rows back. I always sit between the two interchange benches and, and, after he'd kicked his third goal, so he needed four for a thousand, people from all the top decks started coming down to the stands. And where I was sitting, all of a sudden there was a hundred people standing everywhere, and it was actually hard to watch the game. And as he was lining up for goal, the people just were ready to run onto the ground. And so I was commentating with Triple M. Uh, Lou Darcy was he was probably in my ear at the time going, Luffy, you're going out the ground straight away, no hesitation. And I had no idea how big it was going to be. Like I expected a few people to run out the ground, there'll be security running all over him. But what they actually did was as soon as he kicked the goal, the security opened the gates, which is very smart. So the, the AFL has obviously worded them up and said, if he kicks it, don't even try and stop them. It, it'd be ridiculous to try and stop them. And so – I waited until all the flood of people had gone past me. Then I went onto the ground and I was just, I was commentating as I was on the ground right near Buddy. I'd 
people coming up, jumping all over. You could, it was just, it was amazing. And it was a 35 minute delay or something like that. It was crazy, but it was exciting. You know, the, the AFL did the right thing. It's, it's never going to not happen. You know, someone kicks a hundred goals in whenever that may be, they're going to run on the field. And it, it was an amazing experience to be there. And then to watch it later on my own phone filming and watch it on TV to go, that was unheard of. And, People around the world would see that and go, "That is just that. That doesn't happen. Oh. It shouldn't happen, but it does. It was. It was unbelievable." Nah, that's cool, mate. I thought you might have been front and center of uh, the action there at the SCG. Hey, I want to look at the '96 Grand Final, and I guess it's a day where there's probably mixed emotions for you that day. Um, obviously, what an occasion to be a part of. You know, the Sydney Swans, I guess, first Grand Final and so forth. And coming from where you you have, because the the early years of the '90s were pretty lean. But then, obviously, not taking out that that game would have been pretty tough as well. So a game of mixed emotions, I would have thought. And, you know, probably from an individual point of view, you, you're probably one of the best players for the Swans that day. Yeah, look, it was, it was the whole lead-up to the grand final was fantastic. The, the parade that we did in Melbourne, um, I took a camera with me and I got Dipper to take photo of me and Darren Creswell on the back of the car. You know, I took photos of the crowd. I, like, I soaked up the whole atmosphere because, you know, as it was, it was the one and only time that it was ever going to happen. Um, I room with Paul Ruse and, you know, we just took it really casually and, and I said to Ruse just before we ran out in the field, I just said, just stop and have a look at this. You know, there's, there was 95,000 people there, uh, ran out in the ground and I just looked around and went, this is awesome. Like a lot of players are nervous. I think Darren Kresel was throwing up in the toilets, whereas I was more excited. I just couldn't wait to get out there. Um, I got the first kick of the grand final. I was away. I'm like, yep, this is it, away. And, you know, up until about, Eight minutes to go in the second quarter, we had a one. Um, there was a couple of errors from a couple of players, and all of a sudden we went from twenty-three point margin to a four-point margin, and and North Melbourne had all the ascendancy, and and then they just went on with it. Rodney Ede probably panicked a little bit at half time and started making too many positional changes. I went from a wing to the forward to the back, and and players were just getting unsettled. There was no settling of the team. Um, and of course, you know, it was disappointing to lose, no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, I'd certainly say I'd rather play in one and lose than never actually play in one at all because it was a great experience. Another league change here, 3 2 to 3 1. Great play, Allison, to get it to Stevens. Dyson out of the centre, beautifully done. Maxwell could go a long way here, kicks the ball to Luff, he's got him. Schloss went to ground, Luff could really have gone on for a moment there. It's a vacant square. I'm not sure about this matchup, but Troy Luff, very, very good player overhead. That's the strength of his game. I mean, Wayne Schwash will match him in mobility, but uh, in those market contests, that little bit of extra height, and I suppose just Wayne Schwash does very rarely would play on a Troy Luff type forward. It's going to be a difficult kick. Just inside 50, angle about 45 degrees. It's kicked it beautifully again. first quarter in the grand final like this for a long, long time. Hey, I want to ask you, and you sort of just alluded to, you know, you played on a wing at centre-half back and forward and so forth. Mate, you're probably one of the most versatile players I can remember of the 90s because, you know, you could have inputs no matter where the coach puts you. Did you have a position that you preferred to play the most in your time? Um, I mean, there were times in, in well, throughout my whole career that we had two ruckmen down and I'd, I'd ruck. And so I remember in 93, 94, I was rucking against Justin Madden. I'm like, he's like six foot 11. 
you know, I'm six foot three. You know, thankfully I had a reasonable spring on me. And uh, but before they had the the center circles, just the one circle, I used to run from 12, 13 meters away to try and get there in time to get a good spring to jump up and just try and get anywhere near the ball. Um, but the advantage was around the ground. So, you know, I'm a lot more mobile than what Justin Madden was around the ground, and I picked up a lot of possessions that way. I rucked against Jimmy Steins, rucked against um, Sean Rand, you know, some of the biggest ruckmen in the league. But it's just what I had to do. I played on the wing um, now and again. I'd move between back line and forward line, depending on who was playing, what was needed. You know, predominantly 96, I played as a forward. Then in 98, I played mostly as a back. Um, mainly played centre-half back. And so you're playing all the, the greats from other teams, whether it be, well, like I said, I played on John Longmire, I played on David Neeks or Gary Lyon or Jason Dunstall or Matthew Richardson, you know, whoever it was. Um, so I guess it depends on who you're playing. Like, if we were playing at the Gabba or the SCG, I really love playing as a forward. It's a smaller ground, you get opportunities. But on the bigger grounds or in wet conditions, I'd rather play as a backman because it's a lot easier as a defender when it's wet. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I always think that a good forward makes a better backman because they already know how to read play. Yep. All they've got to do is worry about a man at the same time. So I always played a very attacking backman. So I'd go and take my marks. I would, you know, I'd rather mark and punch any day of the week, yeah. you know. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I just enjoyed being out there. I played a lot on the bench as well, which I didn't like as much in the, in the <laughs> later years. Well, I want to ask you about that because my mate who was a, uh, a Mad Swans man and spoke about how uh, he'd love to hear from you, he said, uh, ask Luffy about the Troy Luff stand. So did someone used to put like, and I couldn't remember this, but they, they'd put like um, the Troy Luff stand over around the bench or something or other, did they? Or? Yeah, in my last year because I did spend a lot of time on the bench. Um, it got a bit annoying. Like it wasn't. That was 2001, whereas now if you're on the bench, you're on and off. Like yeah. all four bench players that start on the bench probably play as much game time as 80% of the side, whereas back then it, you, the bench was either because you did something wrong or it was it was just in case. And so, you know, I spent a bit of time on the bench and someone just wrote the Troy Luff stand and stuck it on the back of the bench, which, you know, I was honoured. It's, it's something, better than nothing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Hey, I want to ask you, um, you finished your career in 2001, mate, and I know, you know, and it's well do- been well documented that you, you had some personal um, reasons for why you did. Was it a hard decision to make to leave the AFL being such a big part of your life, Troy? And I know there was a lot of other things going on um, in the background as well with you personally. It probably wasn't a hard decision at the time. I was going through a pretty bad depression, like really bad, you know, because of family issues that had had sort of reared up towards the end of 2000. Um, And so I I pretty much played all of 2001 with depression and nobody knew about it other than um, a couple of select people uh, and a a doctor, you know. Um, So nobody players. I'd go to the gym and and they'd see me really lean and and ripped, which, you know, in everyone's eyes was ideal. But for me, it's because I was so – had so much anxiety that my body fat just disappeared. Mm. Um, so it was really hard. It was really hard to actually get up and play footy every week. So I went from playing most games in 2000 to I might have played eight or so in 2001, trying to, I mean, anyone that's ever been through it, to get motivation to do anything's hard, but to get motivation to try and play AFL, it was just, yeah. like, it, was, it was impossible. Um, and it, w- it was really tough. Thankfully, the, Rodney Ead had a good understanding. I did talk to him a little bit about it because he'd been through the same sort of thing. And 
I had a, a farewell game, the last game of the year uh, against St Kilda, uh, which was fantastic. Um, and it, it just, I, I just said to Rodney, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it. If if I actually went through that today, with the amount of resources available for players going through mental health issues, I probably would have continued playing um, because I was, I, you know, the ability hadn't gone. I had a pretty good year in two thousand and. Um, I went on and got treatment. The next year, I coached a team in Sydney. I, I won the league medal, goal kicking, everything, because I got myself right. And then I was like, I should have kept playing AFL, but I didn't do the treatment. I didn't seek enough help until it was too late. Um, so it wasn't hard to say goodbye at the time, but looking back, I I know I probably could have kept playing for a Another couple of years, at least at the Swans, uh, probably probably even longer because I actually got better as a player playing Sydney footy, you know, right up until my late 30s. And I'm actually still playing today. I'm 52 now and I still play Sydney footy now, just in lower grades, but still run around, still do it because you might get slower, but your mind doesn't. You just know what to do. So, so yeah, I would have loved to have the opportunity to go back in time and say, right, I'm going to get this right yeah. and then get it back out and play again and, you know, I always believe I could have played another few years at least. Anyway, I'm glad you got uh, you know you got into that good headspace, mate. Because um, yeah, I know what a lot of people probably don't understand how it feels and so forth. But it's great that you um, you got yourself back into a really good headspace and you know you kept on playing footy and so forth, which is terrific. Hey, you speak about playing footy. One thing I love watching each and every year, and we probably haven't seen it for a few years now, was the AJ Witten Legends match, mate. You're a uh, oh, you're a permanent yeah. fixture in in one of those games. Uh, that must have been fun. Oh, it was great. Like the first time I got asked to play in it was at the, uh, in 2002 uh, and it used to be on, I think it was on in the middle of the year um, and it might have even been a Wednesday night or something like that. Um, or, yeah, I can't quite remember, but to, just to associate with all these other players was, was great. Um, you know, a lot of people, a, a lot of people that have played AFL, they sort of, they can think that they're, they're on top of the heap, you know, they're the best. People have to look up to them. People have to, admire them, whatever, whereas I'd go and meet ex-AFL players I used to play against and I'd be excited, like, oh, God, I'm, you know, getting to meet all these players. And and because the year I played, some of them were like Robert Dippy and Aminico was playing, um, Mickey Conlon, you know, yeah. I wasn't a Fitzroy fan, but Mickey Conlon, he was a gun, you know, played against him. Um, and the EJ went back there was a lot tougher than what it was you know, a couple of years ago, like Dipper tried to clean me up big time. Players were like serious about tackling. Oh, there'd be some white um, line fever there, I would have thought, Luffy. Well, there is because, yeah, this is the one opportunity these players that have retired get to run out there and have a game. And, you know, it, it was fantastic. Then it just got bigger and bigger. And, and all of a sudden, Eddie had stadiums having 25,000 people. It, it was amazing. And and I was like the, the social leader of, of the group because the <laughs> night before, I'd be in touch with a few of the players and we'd all go out the night before the game. And there was <laughs> even one there was one game that myself and Andrew Buse, Simon Atkins was asleep at the front doorway. <laughs> we sat in the bar until nine AM drinking <laughs> to end up being the day of the game. So, you know, it was just I'd I'd be doing my research to try and find out what's on in Melbourne on a Monday night or a Tuesday night, whatever night it was, you know, and find <laughs> bars to go to. It was it was quite amazing. So, and, and it was great. And like, then they changed the format, and then obviously COVID's come in. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's disappointing that 
the the way it's gone. Um, and I think when they the last year I played was when they took it to Adelaide, and then the next year they changed the format. And of course, Adelaide had terrible weather; they had barely ten thousand people there, and that sort of put a downer on the whole EJ Witten concept. Yeah. Um, and so I think that you know I haven't heard. Is it coming back this year? I haven't heard a word sure. about it. Don't know. I mean, it's getting a bit late now to organise. You know, they generally by by now play and know what's happening. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I've I've formed some great mates with players like Peter Matera, um, Sean Smith, Richard Champion, yep. you know, players I didn't know much about other than playing against them. And you become mates just purely through the EJ Wigan game. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Hey, we're almost at the end, Luffy, but I usually give my guest a couple of quick handballs. So this one I'm going to give you five names from your Swans days, and I just want yeah. you to share one word uh, about these five individuals, all teammates. So the first one that I'm going to give you is Mark Bays. Uh, pretty boy. <laughs> what about Derek Pickett, no, DK? Oh, magician. Adam Huskis. Weirdo. Uh, Adelaide Crows current coach, Matthew Nix. Lover boy. And the last one, an ex-warnable boy too, Wayne Schwoss, Schwatter. Uh, that's a tough one because there's two Wayne Schwoss. There's one that when he played at the Swans and there's one that is now and they're totally different people. But if I go back to my playing days, uh, it's probably two words, party animal. Who is your hardest opponent, mate? Uh, I get asked this often, and I, I throw up a name that some people don't even remember him. It was Mitchell White uh, when he used to play for West Coast. Oh, yeah, yep, yep. The reason being, he would run and run and run and run nonstop. And, you know, I had to be fit. I had to be on my game to follow him and chase him. And so, you know, whether it be the Wacker or the SCG, I just knew I was in for a hard day. And, yeah, it was very hard to play against. Uh, probably... Probably the the toughest guy in a different way was probably Matthew Richardson because he's so big and gangly. Um, and it's funny, we had a game at the MCG one day and it's like he had 21 possessions, I had 21 possessions. He had eight marks, I had eight marks. I kicked the goal. He, it was like, you know, because we were sort of similar in a way of the way we play, but, yeah, he was always tough to play against. Uh, and Luffy, last one, the most memorable game that you played in. Well, I pro- probably the most memorable game was my last game, which was at the SCG against St Kilda. Uh, we won by 80-odd points. Um, I got to do a lap of honour with my kids. And normally players either do it in a car or they just sort of a quick walk around, not the whole ground. And because of the relationship I have with the fans where I, I always would mingle with them, talk to them, sign autographs, whatever, I just walked around slowly around the whole boundary and shook hands with as many people as I could. With a, a couple of minutes to go, there was a luffy chant going around the whole SCG. And <laughs> I remember the, uh, um, St Kilda player kicked it out from full back and I took a mark literally with 10 seconds to go and the siren went and had the ball in my hand. And just the cheer was just, it was deafening. And to know that that was all for me was just, it was humbling. It was amazing. Um, and then, you know, walking around with the kids, my daughter, Olivia and, and son, Mitchell, you know, Olivia was like smiled the whole way around. And my son's like, what's this, dad? What are we doing this for? You know, <laughs> it was just, it was, it was, and everyone waited. It was like, I could see everyone along the boundary as I'm walking around all coming down to get a high five. And then the chant as I went off the ground. So, you know, it's not, it's, 
it's not a win, it's not a loss, it's not about scores or kicking goals. It was actually just the most memorable game you know, of my career. Mind you, I think you'd be pretty thrilled hearing the crowd chanting his name here at the SCG. Well, 12 years he's been with the Swans, and that's his retirement. Here he goes. Early in the week. Could he go back and kick a big talk plugger? <laughs> well, he's only got two. Oh, let your hand out. The siren's gone. And he's got the ball. Can you believe it? He's got to have a shot, surely. Well, he was 95 metres out, Jason. He'd go back and have a kick. Poor old Speed the Spider Everett. He just started walking over to shake his hand. And he was supposed to be back on the mark. Well, 21-16, 142. Hey, Troy Luff, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk all things footy and reminisce, mate. I really appreciate your time and thanks for jumping on the podcast. No, Trent, my pleasure. That's the end of episode 38. If you've missed any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. We're on all the social media platforms, so drop us a line on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter on any particular episode you've enjoyed or a guest you would love to hear. Next week, we catch up with former Essendon skipper Gary O'Donnell. It's tough, it's rugged, it's good, solid AFL football.